Hello and welcome to The Brave. I'm your host, Beth and Vincent, and this is a podcast all about the people, companies and systems that are contributing to building a better future. And today we have Karen Parkhill, who's a senior lecturer in human geography. Karen, if you could give us a little bit of an introduction, that would be amazing. Yeah. Hi, Bethan, and thank you for um, inviting me to this podcast. So, as Bethan says, I'm a, I'm a researcher, well, I'm an academic at the University of York in the Department of Environment and Geography. I'm a senior lecturer. And my research expertise is on public and stakeholder attitudes towards energy issues, environmental issues, and something that we call emergent te- technology. So, early developed technology, um, which includes um, geoengineering, which is also known as climate engineering. And yeah, obviously climate engineering and the words geoengineering might send people listening into a little bit of a, a kind of panic mode, because I think the discourse around them is a little bit kind of dystopian. And we'll dig into that a little bit as we go through the episode. But obviously the climate crisis is clearly, I mean, it's the biggest existential threat humanity faces. And do you think individuals really understand the risks and our individual impact and part to play on the planet's climate future? I think individuals over the last few years have become increasingly aware of it and I think that's partly down to some of the news reporting and seeing what's happening you know with sort of wildfires and those sorts of things but also I would say that XR has played a pretty powerful role of at least alerting people to Um, the climate crisis. And then we've seen, of course, governments and local governments start to declare climate emergencies in the UK. So I think all of that has helped people start to realise that this is a a really significant issue um, and one of the very many environmental issues that we as a species and planet are facing. Um, I don't think people fully appreciate necessarily how their individual actions um, can make a difference Um, and that's not to say that people aren't trying to be environmentally conscious but sometimes I think people play down what the individual or the local or the local community networks can actually achieve which actually is an incredible amount Um, so kind of a positive spin on that if you like Um, yes perhaps people don't necessarily realize what their individual negative actions are having, but also they don't necessarily realise the power of how, what, what small changes can do. That's not to say we don't need big changes as well, though. Um, but I would certainly say over the last few years, um, we've seen sort of an uptick in awareness of and concern. And um, some survey questions actually have even been worded around worry, and we've seen sort of high levels of, of that within um, the UK and other places. Yeah, because obviously at the the time of speaking, we've just had the heat dome in the US. Um, I think New York at the moment is having massive flooding issues and kind of torrential downpours. And in the UK, we've had, you know, we've broken records for the hottest days of the year, like consistently for the past couple of years. So it seems to be, it seems to be happening now in a way that maybe it wasn't before. Yeah, and, and I would also say for a long time, um, quite rightly, there was a reluctance by scientists and others to say this particular event is down to climate change or is being exacerbated by climate change. Um, and we're starting to see those sorts of discourses shift. Um, so, you know, some of the, the flooding events in the UK now have been li- linked to climate change quite directly. Um, so 
and you know it's not an easy job to do that and it's absolutely appropriate that it's taken the scientists that time and they're not necessarily going to be able to do it for every single event um because of course it, these are really complex systems but i think yeah um I think there's a well-known issue, um, particularly in places like the UK, where for a long time climate change was seen as happening to other people elsewhere in the world um, or future generations, whereas now we're starting to appreciate we are actually living through some of those impacts, if not necessarily the worst impacts yet, um, depending on your experience, of course, if you've suffered flooding, which is a horrendous thing to have to go through. You'll absolutely feel that we're living through the worst impacts, but for a lot of us, um, it hasn't been that way. Uh, but um, we're starting to notice changes and, and feel the impacts and hear more about those impacts. Mm. And obviously, technology, and, and I think that's the thing I was really interested to talk to you about, kind of uh, the attitudes towards technology, what technology is doing, because technology got us here to this place, arguably, you know, industrial revolution and leveraging fossil fuels and everything like that but I guess I don't want to ask the question can technology save us <laughs> but in in your opinion are there opportunities for technology to be kind of used to fight the climate crisis? I think absolutely um before we get onto the big things like like potentially climate engineering geoengineering um you know technology is absolutely playing a part in in helping us tackle environmental issues whether it's through you know indirectly through energy efficiency for example you know double glazing insulation those sorts of things are not very exciting or they're playing they're playing a part or whether it's how we recycle things or whether it's technologies on cars or the move to um, electric vehicles and also thinking about renewable energy supply technology absolutely has a has a part to play it's not about saying technology is bad and evil um, we're the ones who use technology and often we use it in ways that it isn't supposed to be used um, so you know we can't pin all of our um, issues on technology is what we're doing in the policies and the regulations that we develop around it and the norms and behaviors and practices that we develop as well but yeah i i think technology is already playing a role in helping us to transition to lower carbon societies mm. i think the the moment for me that was like oh maybe tech can be good and it's not directly linked to climate change but it was the um the vaccine response to the pandemic and how quickly and how kind of effectively that happened. And it was such a global real world Im impact in such a short space of time. Um, it, yeah, it kind of builds your faith in positive science. I know that sounds silly, but. <laughs> no, it's not silly. I think it's a really great example of how we can respond to, to a crisis. I mean, admittedly, you know, we're not saying it's been handled perfectly. Um, but of course, that wasn't just about the technology. That wasn't just the scientists who did an absolutely exceptional job. And I don't know how they did it. And being involved in research, I don't know how they would do it. A clearly very different type of research, but still. And obviously, they worked incredibly hard. And their level of intelligence and genius and fortitude and resilience to work that hard to, to, to develop that technology is astounding. But alongside that, we also saw quite big changes in regulation and how, um, you know, the regulatory process for approving vaccines was adapted, not um, simplified so much that we can't 
rest assured it's safe or you know how it was simplified so that things could go through quicker we saw how funding was made available um, by governments and others um, to help fund that research and that development and manufacturing and so on and so forth we saw how businesses adapted their practices um, you know, in the ways that they were willing to put capital up front and so on. So that wasn't just a technological response. That was a response. I mean, I always regard these things as being part of what we call a socio-technical system. And put simply, that means the social shapes the technical and the technical shapes the social. They're not distinct. Um, and I, I think that's a, a, an absolute great example of where we've seen that happen. But And also fantastic example of seeing how we can um, respond to a crisis with positive developments. Um, and we've seen it before with CFCs, for example, um, when we realised what it was doing to the ozone layer and the immediacy of the need of that um, to change. We saw wholesale changes in um, practices, behaviours, buying, manufacturing, and so on. So we are actually quite good at responding to crises um, a lot of the time. Um, it's just climate change, I think, is, like, like I said before, has been seen as something a bit distant, either in the future or somewhere else. Um, but that's the level of response we actually now need um, for the climate crisis and other environmental issues around things like biodiversity loss, pollution, and so on as well. Um, but we do need that sort of urgency. And hopefully we're getting there with that now. Mm. Because I guess that brings me on to the point of, you know, some of the, the proposals like geoengineering, for example, um, they sound very drastic. And for someone like myself, who's not academic, doesn't understand all the science, it's a pretty scary concept. And therefore, probably there's a bit of resistance from policymakers, maybe to do with the cost as well, but also from the general public. Has, has your research suggested why people almost see this as a big threat or a big risk? I think it's important to say that when it comes to geoengineering, it's not one technology, um, for starters. Um, geoengineering is an umbrella term that encompasses a really diverse range of technologies, some of which exist um, and some of which we're already doing. Um, and some of which are still at the sort of ideas stage, maybe a bit further on than that, but are not yet sort of commercially available. So, for example, you could regard afforestation as a form of geoengineering, because, of course, what do trees do? They capture carbon dioxide, which is what we need them to do. Um, and obviously produce um, oxygen as well. But, um, you know, it's the intentionality there about why are you planting the trees um, and that is to capture the carbon on a scale. And therefore, you could regard that as climate engineering. Now, I've seen a lot of people um, who, who work on climate engineering objecting to that, that trees be considered that way. Um, but they are a very effective machine for capturing carbon when all said and done. In fact, I've seen hilarious tweets on uh, Twitter where I think it... Uh, I think it was Elon Musk who was sort of saying, you know, he'd give out $100,000 for the best idea for capturing carbon. Immediately people started tweeting trees. <laughs> Can I have my 100000 now? You know, and, it, and it's true. But then on the opposite end of, of, of the scale, if there is a scale, um, it can include ideas like mirrors in space to reflect some of the sun's heat and light away from uh, the earth. Or it can include... Um, 
what we call ambient air capture, which is where you might have structures like filters that capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then we store it away. Or it can include things like putting particles up to the stratosphere, which is about 15 to 20 kilometres up. It's the area above our weather. Um, and, you know, these particles, again, would reflect some of the sun's heat and light back into space. So it can go from, I don't want to say intrusive versus non-intrusive or, or, or benign to less benign, because I think we're characterizing things in mm. a way there. But I, d I don't quite know how to word it, if I'm honest. But, you know, things that we're perhaps far more familiar with. So trees or biochar or those sorts of things versus uh, things that require a lot more technological intervention on a, on a slightly different scale, let's say. Um, so I've kind of forgotten what the original question was, but why are people worried about it? That was it, wasn't it? Um, so I think, first of all, people aren't necessarily that familiar with what climate engineering is. Um, I think they're starting to become more familiar. We're seeing a lot more media reporting on it. We're seeing um, governments and the IPCC, for example, starting to talk about it a lot more now as well. Um, I, th I think one of the key concerns that people have is around safety. Um, so what will this thing do if it's out there? Um, can we sort of think through all of the impacts, both intended and unintended, or are things going to happen that we can't quite anticipate? Um, I think that's one aspect of it. And what's really knowable, um, if you're doing this on, on a global scale, can we? are there tests that we can run that can really tell us everything that we need to know before we do it? Um, I think there's concern, significant concern that... Um, policymakers and the like will become distracted from conventional mitigation, so reducing the amount of carbon dioxide we're producing in the first place, um, and will rely on this sort of technology. That's a form of what we call the moral hazard. Um, and, you know, um, so I think there's sort of a couple of the key sort of issues that people have about it. Um, I would say from my research that people tended to be more comfortable with the idea of carbon dioxide removal technologies than they did with what we call solar radiation management or reflective approaches. So where you're trying to reflect some of the sun's heat and light back into space, whatever that version may be. Um, but I would say that this irrespective of, of those different sort of um, categorizations, people were really, really keen that mitigation always comes first. So we keep trying to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases we're putting out there in the first place, rather than relying on things that would take it away or sort it out after the fact. Mm. But do you think there's maybe a cultural aspect to this? Because I think when, when you talk about the kind of uh, like putting mirrors up in space, I, I immediately go to sci-fi and it's bad sci-fi where things go wrong. And do you think that is factoring into it in any way? I, I think so. I mean, if you look at the memes that were out about climate engineering sort of 10 or so years ago, um, they, they were quite derogatory about scientists working in this area. Um, you know, it was known as a sort of wacky science and, you know, 
um, that sort of thing. And, and of course, that will play into people's minds. I should say that I don't think mirrors in space are being seriously considered because the amount of carbon dioxide <laughs> it would take to get them up there would probably negate any, any impacts. But um, yeah, I, I do think there is a concern about that. But I think other things have come into play um, around uncertainties about um, this sort of stuff. Um, and that would be things like uh, nuclear power, um, so Chernobyl, um, Fukushima, those sorts of things. And, you know, even things like BSE um, and sort of unexpected sort of links that happened there around, um, you know, so I think there are things that people are drawing upon both from the real world, if you like, but also popular culture, like you say, um, sort of dy- quite a lot of sci-fi is quite dystopian, isn't it? When all said and done, mm. unless, you're, unless you're a Star Trek fan, maybe. Um, but generally it sort of suggests what could go wrong. But what I should also say is, you know, that yes, there is a lot of hesitancy um, around climate engineering with publics. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't. They think we shouldn't be looking at it. There's has a lot, you know, a lot of worries about full-scale deployment, and a lot of conditions that they would place on that. Um, but they they actually do trust scientists um, and engineers and knowledge makers um, to explore these things. What they don't trust is that the good intentions of those scientists and engineers and so on will not be usurped by political interests or business interests and so on. Mm. You know, so it's not just, again, about the technology. It's about who will be in control of it, who will decide who does what, you know, and and um, is that where it will go sort of wrong? Because mm. I'm very aware we're talking about, like, uh, pe- people as an aggregate, and obviously the society is not just one lump of people who think the same, have the same experiences, come from the same backgrounds. And in your research, was there any suggestion that there were socioeconomic different factors affecting their perception that made it slightly different or cultural factors or anything like that? I mean, most of our, well, all of our research was was based on the UK. So I think, of course, clearly what's missing there is any voices from the global south. Um, And uh, I think that's really important. Um, that that research gets done and um, it's being done um, but a lot more gets done and um, particularly as some of these ideas would take place in or around the global south um, so I think that's absolutely essential and a- apart from anything again we're talking about global scale technologies here this is to have a global impact so certainly it can't just be the UK or the west or the northern hemisphere that are involved in both the knowledge creation and a, any potential um, testing or deployment of, of, of this sort of technology. Um, so I can't really speak to what the differences are across perhaps different cultures. Um, and from what I remember, um, we certain, we didn't sort of get an idea that there was different socioeconomic differences either. Um, I can say, not based on climate engineering research, that we have seen in the past um, in, in research that um, around sort of environmental issues, that there is more technological optimism by white males than there is by any other group. Um, mm. And this this has sort of been done a lot around sort of risk perceptions. And it used to be sort of said that other groups saw something as riskier when actually when you look at it quite carefully, 
it's more the case that white middle-class males have a lower estimate of the risk and that sort of converts into technological big fixes whereas generally other groups particularly women would be more inclined to go with smaller fixes so things like behavior change and practice change or just smaller technologies as well so I don't know if that has actually been found when it comes to climate engineering, whether the studies have been done on a big enough scale to see that. But I wouldn't be surprised if that sort of trend follows suit. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that speaks to probably that technology has been built by certain groups of people for the benefit of certain group of groups of people maybe not even kind of explicitly but just by design um and you, you see this a lot in the tech world where it's like you know algorithms that can't detect someone if they have a different skin tone um so i, I do wonder if it feeds into that that's really interesting and just to kind of come back to our present situation, obviously kind of the pandemic has been a big watershed moment for everyone. Um, I think it's made a lot of people think differently about their lifestyles. And I've noticed just from the people I follow online, which isn't a representative sample by any means, but a lot more people are talking about low carbon lifestyles or eco-friendly lifestyles. Do you think this kind of awareness has increased or that the... the almost the um, willingness to change has increased during this pandemic period? I would say possibly. Sorry, that's a real sort of academic thing to do, isn't it? Qualify your answer straight away. <laughs> um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't just put it down to the pandemic. As I say, I think over the last couple of years, we've, we've seen um, around particular environmental issues, um, them come to light more. We've seen different um, influencers, if you like, um, raising these issues. Um, you know, the Blue Planet is, a, is an ob- obvious one around sort of plastics, for example. Um, you know, a, a great example of really people being made aware of the damage that we're doing and immediately wanting to change. We've seen a massive impact with those sorts of things. Um, and then as I've already mentioned, particularly around climate change, um, whether or not you agree with all of their methods, I think XR have certainly sort of got people saying climate change, what is this about then? Uh, you know, certain people will all have been put off as well and go, they're just a nuisance. But I think for a lot of people, it, it has raised the awareness. But I think particularly last year, we were in our sort of major lockdowns. Um, it, um, and as were many other countries, it was quite startling um, to see those media reports where air pollution had in places like I think was it China and India mm. had something gone dramatically lower and even just sort of pictures of the globe with you know um the lights and so on. I, I think that was really quite startling and made made people realise that um how much we are producing daily and made, perhaps made it a bit more tangible. Um, and then I think because things like transport we've We've had to go from, you know, for a long time, we've been trying to encourage people onto public transport and away from the car, um, which is a really hard thing to do. And But I think slowly that's sort of people have been getting the message and been thinking about whether they need to take the car or whether they should combine journeys or car share and so on. Then suddenly with the pandemic, we were at the case of where we almost were reversing the message. It was, you know... Mm. please avoid public transport if you have to go on obviously mask up etc etc but keep your distance and 
I think for a lot of people who got used to using public transport or car sharing and so on, it made them go, well, rather than reverting back to me on my own in the car again for every single journey, are there alternative things I can do? Can I cycle? Can I run? Can I walk? You know, or can I not make that journey? And of course, a lot of us were encouraged to stay at home and we started to realise what we can do at home um, and, and still do our jobs quite effectively. Um, that has its own issues in terms of um, cloud services, digitalization, and so on um, around mm-hmm. carbon dioxide as well, because it obviously it depends on how you're powering those things and the servers and all that involved. And um, obviously there are equity issues as well. Can people all access these different technologies from home? Um, but it did make people go, do you know what? I don't need to fly to X or wherever it may be. I can actually do a Zoom or Skype or something else. Or I don't have to go into the office every day. Um, I can actually work in a different way. Obviously, that's not the case for all jobs. So I think it's sort of, in a way, you know, if you look maybe five years ago at what we would be recommending in terms of, you know, um, transforming the ways that we do things. One of the things we would be recommending is can we work from home more? Can we stop having lots of individual office buildings and perhaps have hubs that we share? And actually the pandemic, um, certainly with that first part, could sort of kickstart that idea and and all the reasons that we had for why it couldn't be done. You know, we wouldn't work as effectively. We wouldn't, um, you know, as a workforce, be trusted to do our jobs properly or that, you know, video calling wouldn't be as good or, you know, or at least do the job when it came to meetings and so on. We suddenly found actually most of the time it really, really can do the job. And, you know, hopefully that awareness um, that appreciation um, for these different ways of doing things will remain. And um, that's not to say I suddenly expect everybody to stop traveling when we're able to, but I'm hoping that certainly I as an academic firmly believe climate change is happening, firmly believe it's down to um, human impacts, at least in a major part. I've a couple of years ago flew to Denver for a three day meeting um, around climate engineering and climate change, you know, that just does not make sense that we're doing those sorts of things, um, you know, and hopefully they're the sorts of things we can start not changing because we kind of have changed, but keeping those changes. Mm. And I'd love to see a discourse, especially I think within business circles, where there is a lot of travelling, un- not unnecessary meetings, but unnecessary travelling for meetings that could be a Zoom, where people will be empowered to say like, hey, let's do this online because of the environmental impact. And that will be an acceptable thing for people to say. Absolutely. And again, I, you know, I know academia the best. And so many times we're travelling all over the world for conferences to give maybe a 15 minute presentation. And you're sort of going, you know, always around environmental stuff as well. Why aren't we doing more of these things online? And and we've shown, again, we've had to do it. So I'm not saying we should never meet face to face. Or it's just thinking about every journey. You know, do we need to do every single journey that we used to and just go back to normal? Uh, I'd like to see a new normal. And I, I, And I do think that there is an appreciation for that possibility now. Yeah, and I think there's also, it used to be if you were someone interested in like be, having an eco-friendly lifestyle or, you know, you went on about climate change, you were in the minority. 
and people thought you were a little bit weird. <laughs> it's like, oh, there goes the, you know, very green person over there. And now it, now everyone is talking about it, or most people are talking about it, which is really encouraging to me. I think the pandemic has solidified a lot of this. But those trends that you were talking about, even just then, about sort of different, the stigma that used to be attached to being green, that's been changing for a long time as well. You know, um, so, you know, where people would be seen as tree huggers, um, for wanting to live in a slightly different way. Now it is becoming far more um, conventional. Um, so that's great to see. I, I think it's still it's got a long way to go. And, mm. you know, I'm not trying to um, belittle the challenge that is ahead of every single one of us, not just our policymakers and industry, but every single one of us. But it is gratifying to see that, you know, pro-environmental behaviours are being seen as a positive, not just for the environment, but also for lifestyle, for health and well-being, mm-hmm. um, for equity and justice reasons and so on and so forth. But we're still a long way off getting it, you know, firmly on the centre page, as it were. Yeah, I think that there was a point for me in the pandemic, I don't know if you live in York at all, but I used to live off Bootham. Um, and walk along Bootham every day to work and it was always really you know you could tell there was a lot of pollution and I remember going for a walk the first week of the first lockdown and I was like there I can smell the world and the grass and not just cars and it was really like oh it doesn't have to be this way absolutely and I mean York is cities you know well known for its pollution levels it's pretty high um given the nature of, of the city um and i think you know yeah um people saw the sort of health benefits of 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 perhaps in a way that they hadn't noticed before because we've always kind of lived with it so suddenly when it mm. stops you go actually this isn't this isn't how it has to be but also people reclaiming the streets you yeah. know that the streets aren't just about cars that actually there are other users and and so on and so forth um, I think that's going to be tricky to hold on to, but hopefully we can. Um, and hopefully people remembering that will give greater support when city councils and local authorities are trying to do things like stop private cars going into cities yeah. and so on, because they'll realise that actually there is another way we can do this. And there are so many other benefits, not just to the environment, but to us and so many other things. Yeah, because it, it does rely on kind of, a, well, York is a really good example of a lot of nimbyism when it comes to green policies where it's like, well, no, we agree more more cyclists should be on the road and we don't want cars going through thoroughfares, but not my street, please. Well, you see, uh, I don't like the, I, I don't like the term nimbyism. I'm, I'm dead against people using the term nimbyism because what it implies is that people are just being selfish. And actually... Whenever I've done, so I've done a lot of work looking at attitudes to onshore wind um, and, you know, I've never found that people are being selfish. And I think it's a really quick way to, and I'm not saying you would do this, so don't, please don't, don't think I'm targeting you here, but just generally when people use it, it's a really quick way to dismiss people's concerns that they have. Yeah. And actually what we need to do is understand their concerns. So if, for example, people are saying, I don't want cyclists in the city of York, that's probably because at the moment they're highly reliant on the car. But perhaps if they had a better public transport system, um, you know, that they could tap into, 
they wouldn't be as reliant on cars and wouldn't see the cyclists as a threat. You know, in the end, generally what people want to do is live their lives, work hard, provide for their families, um, you know, and generally have good intentions. Not everyone. I'm not saying there aren't people who are selfish about this sort of stuff, but, you know, in general, I think people do want good changes. So it's about being, you know, a little bit careful and listen quite carefully to what are the reasons underpinning that, Mm. that reluctance to accept whatever it is sorry that was a bit of um, me on a pedestal there moment no no (laughs) yeah no but that's a really core tenant of this isn't it it's like actually listening to people listening to people's concerns and not treating it as as a kind of like abstract behavior change program where it's like you've got to change because we tell you to yeah I don't think they ever works when I certainly know um, not just as a kid, but as an adult, whenever somebody tells me I absolutely have to do something, I'm I'm almost like a kid as an adult. I kind of want to go, well, no, not now you told me. Yeah. You know, what will encourage me is when it's explained to me why I need to do what they're saying I need to do. And um, I can then follow the logic, maybe adapt the plan a little bit because of my experience and knowledge about something. And I think that's another key thing, you know, with publics. Uh, I always hear about we need to communicate with publics um, I use publics deliberately to sort of represent what you were saying earlier that there isn't one group um, mm. and actually we don't need to communicate publics you know it's not just about us in the know apparently a form of know telling people what they need to do it's about engaging with them not to yeah. try and necessarily persuade them down a certain route but actually to listen and open up include different perspectives different experiences different knowledges to find different ways different solutions you know and I think it's always more effective when you open up and have a slightly open mind um about where you know our visions and where we want to go than if we just go here here's our plan please tick this box to say you agree with us now because um, yeah. then it just feels like it's been done to them and that's that's not yeah. okay but that's so much of the like that's the modern consultation process isn't it we're going to tell you this is what we're going to do you might get a choice of a couple of options but please tick this box and comply with something yeah you know it's not easy to open up because as you can't sort of say we can do anything because then you're you're raising expectations um, when we can't actually do anything um but I, I i do think it is about sometimes taking a step back and going hey you know how are you living your lives now? How could that change to help with these different issues around environment and equity and so on? You know, what are your ideas? Um, because certainly, again, coming back to climate engineering, um, we were genuinely um, impressed, amazed and thankful for engagement with the public because they thought of things that we just wouldn't have thought of in our, our sort of echo chamber of, you know, certain types of people. Um, so, you know, it's always worth engaging with people um hopefully to get better ideas but also to just not impose upon people you know and tell them this is what you're doing this is how you're doing it because we say so if people wanted to go and find out a little bit more about your research where would be the best place to direct them well probably um to my university of york webpage because from there they can access what we call our call our pure profiles or our research profiles where they can potentially see Um, papers and and other stuff like that thanks so much to Karen for coming on and having a chat with me that was really informative and actually in a weird way quite encouraging as well 
So if you enjoyed the podcast, I would be so grateful if you could give us a like and or a review on the podcast platform of your choice. Just helps us reach more people, the algorithm will spread us further and all of that fun stuff. And also I get to know that you're actually enjoying what I'm putting out there. And constructive criticism as well is gratefully received. If you want me to do something differently, if there's a topic you want me to cover, do let me know. You can also get in touch on Twitter. The podcast has its own Twitter profile at The Brave Listen. I'm at Beth and Vincent. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, all of the channels at Beth and Vincent. And The Brave is generally available on (laughs) Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Finally, if you weren't aware, we do have a newsletter that complements the podcast. It's The Brave over on Substack, so thebrave.substack.com. And like I said, we share very similar information in more of an essay format. I also include lots of really interesting links from across the internet that I found that kind of fit into this theme of building a better future. So it's there to kind of inspire and inform you as well. Finally, thank you so much. Just wanna say that, really appreciate your time with me today. We will be back in the next episode. See you then.